the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great and that every inclination of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind. It grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, for I'm sorry that I have made them. And the waters swelled on the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. Then the Lord said in his heart, The inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. He said to Noah, I'm establishing my covenant with you and with every living creature that is with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off. I have set my bow in the clouds. When the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant, the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Dr. Walter Brueggemann, in his commentary on this passage, reminds us that there are many flood stories belonging to various tribal groups in the Middle East, and that the Israelite story about that flood is far from being the oldest one. Dr. Gerhard von Rod, a great German theologian, says that we have here the blending of two of the four ancient sources we have in the Torah. We have the efforts of the J writer, that one who put down on paper, on writing materials suitable to the time, stories told around campfires for hundreds of years. The J writer's work was about 50 years after David established the new capital city in Jerusalem, about 950. But Dr. Van Rod says, but most of the passage we've just read was actually composed by the priests in Babylon. 400 years later, about 550. The scholars agree that we can no longer recapture that historical event which prompted all these stories about a great flood. It's unlikely such a flood took place in Israel. It's mostly desert country. There is some geological evidence that there was a big flood one time up in what is modern-day Iraq. And the biblical story says that the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat, which is in modern-day Turkey. We can be sure there must have been a big flood one time. The people who told stories about it around campfires for hundreds of years remembered such a big flood. But if the Israelite story was not the first story about that flood, what should you and I be looking for here? How the Israelite story differs from all the others. How is it different? In the conclusion... In all the other stories we've found about that great flood, there is one who has to build a boat, gather as many living beings onto the boat as possible, and save humankind. At the end of the story, all of the other stories, that person gets to be a god. In the Israelite story, it's Noah. He's the one who builds the boat. He's the one who collects animals and his own family onto the boat. And when the flood waters finally go down, Noah plants seeds, raises grapes, makes wine, gets drunk, embarrasses himself in front of his kids, and then he dies. Do we see any difference in the story? In the portion that we've read today, we have real differences between the way the Israelites told that story and the way others told the story. 
because the Israelites are not primarily concerned about how big the boat or where it came to rest, but what can we learn from this story about our God? Four things. First, God had created all that was. From chaos and darkness, God brought something beautiful into being. Everything that God created, He declared to be good. And the human beings He created, He declared very good. But it did not take long for them to become very bad. On one page of the Bible, we have them picking forbidden fruit off a tree. And on the next page, a brother murders his brother in a field. It didn't take them long to do really bad things. And here so early in that first Torah scroll, God said, I am sick of human beings. I'm sick of them. I'm about to do something about human beings. Last Sunday evening here at Boston Avenue, we had a dinner celebrating the first 25 years of Jewish, Christian, and then Muslim trialogue. I was one of the original members of that first group and have been in the group for 25 years. We normally meet the fourth Wednesday afternoon of every month, September through May, 3.30 to 5 o'clock p.m., with a full 90 minutes every month for 25 years. group can read a lot of books, have lots of discussions. One of the authors we've enjoyed and been blessed by his work is Dr. David Novak. He is a Jewish scholar. In one of his books, he describes a Yom Kippur service. He is living in the South. Florida has been his home a major part of his life. It was the fall, 1963. He's on the way to Yom Kippur. A young man, it's been raining all morning. And as he walks down the sidewalk hurriedly to get to the synagogue for the beginning of the Yom Kippur service, he comes face to face with an elderly black woman. Before he can react to her, she steps off the sidewalk into ankle-deep, muddy water in the curb to let him pass. He said moments later, in the synagogue, the Torah is being read. And one portion of that Torah says, in the face of age, let all stand. I should have been honoring this older woman. She stepped off the sidewalk for me because she understood that's what she was supposed to do. She was black. I was white. It grieved my heart. A few weeks later, our president would be shot down in the streets of Dallas. The 1960s would only get worse for a long time. Senator Robert Kennedy would be assassinated. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would be assassinated. We would have uh, rioters in Chicago during the Democratic Convention throwing human excrement on the police officers of Chicago. Drugs, promiscuous sex. It was a tough, tough decade. It just seemed to get worse and worse. But in addition to all of that, I was a young college student in the 60s myself, and I had come to know professor couple whom I'd come to love very much who had had to flee Germany because they were Jews in that society they were expected to step off the sidewalk to step into ankle deep water if necessary 
1939 with Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass when Jewish synagogues were desecrated, Jewish businesses burned, Jewish homes looted. This couple decided it was no longer safe to be in Germany and they spent everything they had to have themselves and their son, their only son, smuggled across Belgium, finally to England. They had enough money for passage on a ship to New Orleans, train tickets up to Shreveport. They knew one Jewish family in Shreveport. They wired ahead, said, we've had to spend everything. Can you help us start over? They called the president of our Methodist college there, Centenary. He was standing on the train depot when they got off the train. He introduced himself and said, would you teach for us? And when they taught me, they were almost 70 years old. But they changed my life forever. They went to synagogue every Friday night. They taught Christian students at Centenary College all week. They taught in the history department. I was a history major. I had history of Western civilization, history of Russia at the time of the Cold War, at the time of the Cuban crisis. I'm studying Russian history with two Jews who've been banned from their jobs at the University of Berlin just because they're Jews. It would lead Gail and me one day to go to Poland to see the best preserved of the Holocaust sites, to understand a little bit better this horrible, horrible thing that had happened. At Maidanek, she and I walked around that concentration camp through it for five hours one afternoon with our personal guide. We saw only one other couple the whole five hours. It was one of the loneliest places I've ever been in my life. You could almost hear the cries of these people. Those being gassed, then burned. We took one day off and then were taken to Auschwitz. All the stories I'd read of survivors of Auschwitz, and now we stood there in these corridors to walk in and see a room filled with glasses, eyeglasses, for little bitty faces, for teenage faces, for young adult faces, for lots of grandmothers and grandfathers' faces, glasses, glasses, glasses. One whole huge room filled with shoes. Little bitty shoes, little bit bigger shoes, shoes for grandmothers and grandfathers. To try to eat just a bite, choke down a little bit of food, be taken straight on to Birkenau, to stand on the Judenrampa that you saw in Schindler's List, this train that came right in through the front gates, and Jews were separated, those who would be immediately gassed and burned, and those who would be used as laborers for a while and then gassed and burned. How vile this human creature can be. How vile. And God said, I'm sick of you. I'm sick of you. And I'm about to do something with you, to you. And if you read carefully that Genesis account, the old J writer, you see how primitive his understanding of the world. Thought the world was flat, of course. He thought there was water underneath the earth because if one dug down far enough, one would come to water. And so he imagines that there are pillars holding the earth up out of that water. But when the flood comes, it not only comes from the heavens, God also opens fountains from the deep underneath. If you were listening carefully or following along as I read, it said he cut off the waters that were falling and the fountains from underneath and then caused a wind to blow to dry out the earth. It's a very primitive story of what God did when he was really sick of human beings. Number two, 
Again, God reaffirms that if he didn't care so much, it wouldn't hurt so much. If he didn't care so much about every one of these into whom he had breathed the very breath of life, then it wouldn't hurt so much when they hurt each other. When one of his little ones is mistreated, when one of his women is beaten, slapped around, just because she may not be as physically strong as the men in her life. You know all the things we do to each other, these horrible things human beings do to each other. Just Friday it was stated that in the United States of America, more than one out of every hundred people in our country is in a prison right now. A higher percentage of our people in prison than any other nation on the planet today. Unbelievable, don't you think? It wouldn't hurt so badly if God didn't care so much. The other day, I received a little devotional guide sent to me by the Council of Bishops. Because I'm a delegate-elect to the General Conference, it will be taking place in Fort Worth, Texas, April 23rd through March 2nd. You know, we Methodists gather for this huge conference once every four years. It's always on the election year, the leap year. This is the year coming up. And the Council of Bishops are wanting all of us to be reading the same devotional guide page by page, one day at a time, until we arrive in Fort Worth. So I was reading one of these devotionals. It was written by Dr. Rebecca Miles. I know Dr. Miles. She's one of our professors at Perkins School of Theology, Southern Methodist University. And Rebecca was reminding us about the movie Saving Private Ryan. Remember? Saving Private Ryan was about a family, four sons, all four fighting for their country in World War II. And within a period of a few days, three of those sons are killed in action. Their mother has visitor after visitor after visitor who says, your son has been killed in battle. So word comes that they've got to find that fourth son before he dies. No mother should lose all four sons in this war. And they commission a captain and seven others to go find him and deliver him for safe transport to his mother. It's an almost impossible job. They have a vague idea where his unit may be. It's on the front lines. It may well cost all eight of them their lives. And the captain, played by Tom Hanks, you remember, says, This Ryan better be worth it. When we get him home, he better find a cure for some major illness or at least a longer-lasting light bulb. He better be worth it. And you get the feeling that he isn't worth it, that eight might die to save one. Except to that mother, he would be worth it, wouldn't he? To God Almighty, he would be worth it. Whether he finds a cure for a serious illness or never works on a light bulb, he's worth it to God. That's why it hurts so much. Number three. The floodwaters went down. God takes a good look at those who are left now and decides they haven't been changed at all. Same old people. They haven't been changed. They've been through this horrible experience of flood 
They've been saved, spared, and they're acting just like folks have always acted. Just doesn't seem to be getting any better. In 1988, Gail and I decided that we would like for our two sons and the two of us to see a little bit of what life was like on the other side of the wall in communism. Now, none of us questioned our loyalty to our great country, nor the principles of democracy. We just wanted to see what that was like. We took our summer vacation. Jason was about to go into his senior year in high school. Trey about to go into his senior year at SMU. And we went to Berlin. The wall was still there. As I got my first look at Berlin, I kept remembering what my old professors had told me. They had encouraged me, go, go to Germany. You will find many wonderful people there, they said. You must go to the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin. But we couldn't walk through the Brandenburg Gate. It's a huge archway. There were communist soldiers patrolling under the archway with huge German shepherds and Doberman pinchers. Uh, could not go through the gate. Later, we were taken through Checkpoint Charlie. It took an hour and a half to get through, and we were driven down Unter den, Linden, Unter den Linden, but we didn't get to walk. Years later, Gail and I did get to walk down that magnificent street, but not that time. We got a taste of communism. We saw people lined up around a city block trying to get a shot at one tomato in a supermarket that had no food. People lined up around the block trying to get one roll of toilet tissue, and you could see there were only four or five in the window and several hundred people waiting for a chance to have one. We saw the little cars, little tin boxes, the tray bomb, how terrible they were. We got a glimpse of communism, not having a dream that a year later the wall would come down, that we would see on television people sitting atop that wall, beating on it with hammers and chisel. The Soviet Union was falling apart. We dreamed of a thousand years of peace. It didn't last weeks. People who had lived next door to each other and had gotten along peaceably for 40 years with the Russian hammer hanging over their head suddenly decided to start killing each other. In Bosnia, uh, Bosnia, Herzegovina, we had Serbian Christians, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic Christians, and Muslims who've lived next door to each other, kids intermarrying for 40 years. And when the Soviet tanks pulled away, they started knifing and shooting each other, raping and plundering, burning each other's houses to the ground. Unbelievable. And suddenly, if it's not the Soviet Union... It's Iran, it's Pakistan, it's Afghanistan, it's India, it's North Korea. Pick a place. Pick a place. Here we are after the flood, not changed, doing the same old things. Number four. God is acknowledging flood didn't change them. So I'm going to change my mind. I'm never going to do this again. Never. I'm going to pitch my lot with these folks. For good or bad, better or worse. I'm pitching my lot with them. And trusting that somehow they will come to understand. 
God decided to be the vulnerable one, to be the one who cared. He said, I'm putting a bow, and this word in Hebrew can mean the kind you pull and let fly with an arrow. I've put my bow in the clouds. It's not drawn. There is no arrow there. Every time there are clouds, there will be a bow. Don't think it will affect people, he said, but it will affect me. Every time I see the bow, I will remember the everlasting covenant. Never again will I cut all of them off from me. Never, ever again. Gina Bridgman has written about her little daughter, Maria. She said, from the time Maria had her first birthday to the next, the next, I would tell her how much her father and I loved her. We'd tell her as we blew out candles on the cake. I would tell her that we got so excited when we saw the sonogram and we could see the little tiny heart pulsing there. How excited we were the day she was born. She'd surprised us by coming weeks early. She was so tiny. But when her father was allowed to bring her into the room to me the very first time, he was singing quietly, Maria, I've just met a girl named Maria. You can say it softly. It's almost like praying, he sang. Well, Gina says every birthday the daughter knows the story by heart, but she wants us to tell it again. Mama, she said, tell me about the sonogram. And I tell her, tell me how early did I come? Uh, Five weeks. And what did Dad sing when he brought me into the room? He sang your name, Maria, Maria. She wants to hear that story over and over because before anybody started judging her or giving her grades on anything, she was loved, really loved. Jeff Bloom said he went to a big conference for people who work with the incarcerated. He said he heard several really outstanding speeches and then time of question and answer. And an old priest, sort of wrinkled, disheveled coat, stood up and said, working in a prison is a hard and thankless job. Let me tell you about something at San Quentin years ago. There was an old priest there who gave his adult lifetime to being chaplain to the prisoners at San Quentin. He said, there was one prisoner who had a reputation for being the biggest con man at San Quentin. He could talk faster than anybody else. He could seem to wrangle little pleasures, extra treats. You don't get much, he said, at San Quentin, but from this one old Catholic priest, he would sort of move him around to get just a few more minutes with his visitor, just a few more minutes on the telephone than others were getting. But he said, you know, if you're a con man, it's not much fun if the opposition isn't very strong. And so one day this prisoner said to the old priest, you're the biggest sucker in this place. Well, I've been using you for years and years. Every time I wanted to visit a little longer than the rule said, every time I wanted to talk a little longer than the rule said, you were easy. Sucker, that's what you are, a sucker. The old priest looked at him and said, Well, the one who called me said that I could be cynical or I could be the sucker. And that maybe the way he cared for people could be characterized as if Almighty God is a sucker. I'm trying to do it his way. And the old priest sat down. And the moderator said, And... You know this story, sir, because you were that priest. 
And he said, no, I know this story because I was that convict.